Hear the word of the Lord from Nehemiah 7, 5 through 73. Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first, and I found written in it. These were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried into exile. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his town. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, Rehemiah, Nehemani, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispereth, Bigvi, Nahum, and Baana. The number of the men of the people of Israel, the sons of Perosh, 2,172. The sons of Shephatiah, 372. The sons of Era, 652. The sons of Pehath Moab, namely the sons of Jeshua and Joab, 2,818. The sons of Elam, 1,254. The sons of Zatu, 845. The sons of Zakai, 760. The sons of Binui, 648. The sons of Bibai, 628. The sons of Asgad, 2,322. The sons of Adonikam, 667. The sons of Bigvi, 2,067. The sons of Aden, 655. The sons of Ater, namely of Hezekiah, 98. The sons of Hashem, 328. The sons of Bezai, 324. The sons of Hereph, 112. The sons of Gibeon, 95. The men of Bethlehem and Natopha, 188. The men of Anathoth, 128. The men of Beth Asmaveth, 42. The men of Kiriath Jerim, Shepharah, and Beeroth, 743. The men of Ramah and Geba, 621. The men of Michmas, 122. The men of Bethel and Ai, 123. The men of the other Nebo, 52. The sons of the other Elam, 1,254. The sons of Harim, 320. The sons of Jericho, 345. The sons of Lod, Hadid, and Ono, 721. The sons of Sayana, 3,930. The priests, the sons of Jediah, namely the house of Jeshua, 973. The sons of Immer, 1,052. The sons of Pashur, 1,247. The sons of Harim, 1,017. The Levites, the sons of Jeshua, namely of Cadmiel, of the sons of Hodava, 74. The singers, the sons of Asaph, 148. The gatekeepers, the sons of Shalom, the sons of Ater, the sons of Talman, the sons of Akub, the sons of Hatida, the sons of Shobai, 138. The temple servants, the sons of Ziha, the sons of Hasufa, the sons of Tebaoth, the sons of Keros, the sons of Sia, the sons of Padan, the sons of Labana, the sons of Hagaba, the sons of Shalmai, the sons of Hanan, the sons of Gedel, the sons of Gahar, the sons of Riyah, the sons of Rezin, the sons of Nakoda, the sons of Gazam, the sons of Uzzah, the sons of Pasia, the sons of Besai, the sons of Meunim, the sons of Nephushesim, the sons of Bakbuk, the sons of Hakufa, the sons of Harhur, the sons of Balith, the sons of Mahida, the sons of Harsha, the sons of Barkos, the sons of Sisera, the sons of Tima, the sons of Neziah, the sons of Hatifa. The sons of Solomon's servants, the sons of Sotai, the sons of Sophereth, the sons of Parida, the sons of Jayala, the sons of Darkon, the sons of Gedel, the sons of Shephatiah, the sons of Hatil, the sons of Pokareth Hezebaim, the sons of Ammon. All the temple servants and the sons of Solomon's servants were 392. The following were those who came up from Telmila, Telharsha, Cherub, Adan, and Immer. But they could not prove their father's houses nor their descent, whether they belonged to Israel. The sons of Deliah, the sons of Tobiah, the sons of Nakoda, 642. Also of the priests, 
the sons of Hobiah, the sons of Hakaz, the sons of Barzillai, who had taken a wife of the daughters of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and was called by their name. These sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but it was not found there, so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food until a priest with Urim and Thummim should arise. The whole assembly together was 42,360, besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337. And they had 245 singers, male and female. Their horses were 736, their mules 245, their camels 435, and their donkeys 6,720. Now some of the heads of fathers' houses gave to the work. The governor gave to the treasury 1,000 derricks of gold, 50 basins, 30 priests' garments, and 500 minas of silver. And some of the heads of fathers' houses gave into the treasury of the work 20,000 derricks of gold and 2,200 minas of silver. And what the rest of the people gave was 20,000 derricks of gold, 2,000 minas of silver, and 67 priests' garments. So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their towns. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. This is the word of the Lord. Well, when you uh, are in, in the conviction that the Word of God is authoritative and that all of Scripture is inspired, uh, you got to prove it. you got to stand up and listen to all of Scripture, and this is all of Scripture. Um, Liz, you messed up. Uh, let's see, it was, it was 800, and you said 854, it's 845. Yeah, you're forgiven. My goodness. I'm uh, Rob Spector, Pastor Rob, the pastor of discipleship here. Uh, Justin is in, um, I think, Collinsville. He is preaching uh, for, uh, he's got a hard work, a hard job. He's, he's preaching for a pastor, one of our Acts 29 pastors, whose wife passed away unexpectedly about a month ago, and so they're having different individuals fill the pulpit, and so it's his turn to fill the pulpit. So he is there in Collinsville, a church kind of devastated, and obviously a pastor who's lost his wife unexpectedly. Um, and here we are, the first day of Advent, the day of hope. And so he's preaching on hope. So I'm going to be praying for him as we pray right now for God's Word. Father, we thank you for your Word, and uh, we do believe that it is all inspired that it has come from you and that you had a reason for this list for us. And Father, this morning we um, anticipate what you are going to do uh, through this passage in our hearts and lives. And Father, but we're dependent upon you completely and fully and wholly uh, for you to do, to do a work. And so we pray that you would be doing that pray for Pastor Justin. We pray for the hard work that you have given him, the assignment you have given him today, which is to preach to a congregation that's, that's mourning a pastor who is mourning the loss of his wife. We pray that you would give him help as he preaches a, a message of hope. Um, we are thankful, Father, for not only the death of your son on our behalf, but the resurrection of your son on our behalf. That does give us hope, not a hope that is anxious and wondering if it really will happen, but Father, rather a security, a certainty for Christ has gone through death and out the other side uh, victorious, and that is the promise you have for each of us uh, as we rest and trust in him. So we pray, Father, for your blessing on that congregation and the blessing of your word there as well, we ask. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we all like stories. That's why we like movies. Um, in many post apocalyptic movies, there is a scene where the main character is confronted with some iconic structure. So for me, growing up in the 70s, that post-apocalyptic movie was the Planet of the Apes with Charlton Heston. Yeah. 
At the very end of the movie, Charlton Heston, he is riding a horse along the beach, and in the distance, he sees a statue, a massive statue, at least a torso of that statue, and it's kind of leaning sideways. And as he gets closer, he realizes just how massive this structure is, or we do as, as viewers, because we are taken from the back end then of the, of the statue. We, get, we, we look through, uh, and through the statue, through the head, and on this head, it's got some spikes on it, and we're looking through that, and we're looking down at Charlton Heston, who's now looking up at us uh, from, the, uh, from, this, from this beach side. Well, we see, it pans in on his face, and we see his response, and his response is one of recognition and then of, of just great sadness, for it is the statute, or the statue of liberty. And he slides off his horse, he falls to his knees in the sand, and pounding the sand, he yells, you maniacs, you blew it up! And then he pounds the sea on his knees, and he's thinking of, of course, the apes, um, planet of the apes, and he repeatedly damns them all to hell. He mourns not so much the loss of the statue as much as what he is mourning is what the statue stood for, and that is the freedom for all people to pursue life, liberty, and happiness. The more modern-day post-apocalyptic movie, I Am Legend, is set in New York City where we find the actor Will Smith roaming the iconic streets and buildings of that city. The devastated city, a reminder of the past economic glories of that country. Or The Oblivion, a movie set on earth that is devastated after decades of war, and the movie poster has the main character walking on the Brooklyn Bridge. These structures, the Brooklyn Bridge, um, structures within New York City, or the Statue of Liberty, as great as they are in terms of their architectural achievements, they represent something greater. They represent the glories of a people and of what those people stood for. So we come to Nehemiah, this part of Nehemiah, when, when the story began, it all began with a building of some walls. But if it was only about rebuilding the walls, then we would be done, and we know we're not done because of what we just read there, but we would be done back in chapter 6, verse 15, where we read these words, so the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. But the book of Nehemiah isn't about just rebuilding some walls. The book of Nehemiah is about something much greater. The book of Nehemiah is about the glory of God. And God doesn't shy away from building beautiful things, buildings, or even beautiful cities. And matter of fact, he inspired a song about, the, uh, about Jerusalem. And so we're going to look at that psalm, Psalm 48. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm 48, or we'll have it there on the screen as well. Something much greater is at stake. And at stake is this city, but ultimately it's something that this city represents. So Psalm 48, it goes this way. A song, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. And within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. For behold, the kings assembled, they came on together, and as soon as they saw it, they were astounded. They were in panic. They took to flights. Trembling took hold of them there. Anguish as of a woman in labor. By the east wind you shattered the ships of Tarshish. As we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. Selah. 
We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. As your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad, and let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Walk about Zion. Go around her. Number her towers. Consider well her ramparts. Go through her citadels that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God forever and ever. He will guide us forever. Uh, Did you see that? Did you miss that at all? He tells us to take a, a survey of the city, to walk around Zion, to number her towers, consider her ramparts, look at her citadels, that you may tell the next generation that this is God. Well, we know Jerusalem isn't God, and yet we do know, he says here, this is God. What he's saying here is, is that the glory of Jerusalem, this beautiful city, is a reflection of ultimately the glory of God. Which explains Nehemiah's response when we go back to our passage and, we, and when he learns about the city In chapter 1, verse 4, he responds this way when he hears about the brokenness of it. He says, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Like the characters in these post-apocalyptic stories, Nehemiah is mourning the loss of God's glory. Well, this mundane section of names and numbers is the turning point of Nehemiah reflecting back on the work of God as he turns his attention to the future work of God. God has called Nehemiah to do more than just rebuild a wall. He has called him to rebuild a nation for the glory of God. Now, Remember, Nehemiah was a civic leader, and God was calling him to rebuild the nation, but he knew that central to a nation and her culture was her worship. And so we have said many times from this pulpit that government or culture, government and or culture, comes downstream from what one believes as ultimate, or what one worships, or what a people worship or we could just say religion. So Nehemiah, as he reflects on what God has done in the past to set him and a group of exiles up, he's now looking, he's gonna be looking after this passage to the future. And it all revolves around the glory of God. Central to the success, to the fruitfulness of the work of God is the glory of God, and the battlefield of that glory is the human heart. So let me show you from the text how this was and continues to be played out. So first of all, Nehemiah looks back at what God has done. So look at Nehemiah chapter seven, look at verse five, and it goes this way. Then God, my God put into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy, and I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first, and I found written in it, and then he starts a list of names. Now look there again. Nehemiah has found what? A book of the genealogy of those who came up at first. Nehemiah, what he's doing is he's talking about the exiles who years earlier, by the kingly decree of Cyrus, these exiles have returned to Judea and Jerusalem to first rebuild the temple. Look at verse 6. These were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles from um, exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried into exile, and they returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. These were the people of the province. A reference to the Babylonian. Uh, province now within the now greater kingdom of Persia. These were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried into exile. Nehemiah is looking back to the work of God in the lives of his people. And so the king of heaven 
took a king of the earth, Nebuchadnezzar, king of a superpower of their day, Babylon, and he disciplined his own people for loving the things of this world over the things of God. Or better, giving God's glory to lesser things of this world. Central to the work of God is the glory of God. There is a glory war going on in our hearts every single day. Jesus said it this way in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. Matthew 6, 19 through 21. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So whatever your heart treasures, whether it be a particular economic status, whether it be a position or a title, whether it be your family, whether it be your kind of retirement that you want, whether it be God and his kingdom. Wherever your treasure is, your heart worship will be also. And when it comes to heart worship, it's impossible to multitask because he says three verses later, in verse 24, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. And mammon is the Semitic word for money and possessions. Bottom line, whatever captures our heart drives our lives. And so there is a glory war going on in our hearts every day, and whatever capture our hearts drives our lives. So the people of God were driven by the glories of the things of this world, and thus they got off mission. The king of heaven then used a king of a superpower to discipline them and get them back on mission. Now, implied back in our passage in verse 6 of chapter 7, implied in that verse is that in 539 B.C., Babylon fell to Cyrus the Great, and a transfer of power occurred on the world, sta the world stage. The exchange of power went to Persia, and the king of heaven then used an earthly king of a superpower, Persia, to restore a small group of his people back to Jerusalem, 538 B.C. And look at what these particular people did who are listed in the, in the genealogy. Look at the end of verse 6. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. Now let's reflect for a moment what happened between five. 86 and 538. The final and most devastating Babylonian siege of Jerusalem occurred in 586. The temple and the walls were destroyed. Only the poorest of the poor were allowed to remain there in Jerusalem and in Judea. Uh, the rest were forcibly removed and relocated in a country that was not their own, surrounded by gods not their own, with a culture that was downstream from the people's faith in those gods. Those gods were the Babylonian gods. The exiles settled in for the long haul. They built homes, started businesses, learned to eat Babylonian cuisine, discovered Babylonian pastimes, like backgammon, joined their local Babylonian bowling league, which, by the way, backgammon and bowling is, goes back to Mesopotamia, interestingly enough, back to Babylon. The outward war was over, but a glory war was now raging on the battlefields of their hearts. Central to the work of God is the glory of God. 
Nearly 50 years have passed from that last Babylonian siege. Babylon, Babylon has fallen in all her glory to a new superpower, Persia. King Cyrus gives permission to, for the exiles to return. And what we have here is a list of all those who were compelled by the glory of God to return and restore Jerusalem and God's kingdom. 50 years had passed, but memories of their hometowns have not. These were patient people believing in the promises of God. See, while in Babylon there was, there was a headspace, or might, we might want to say there was a heart space that his people had uh, between the reality of their lives as exiles and the promises of God. See, they not only knew the promises of God, they loved the promises of God. For, for they knew the God who had made those promises. And so in that headspace, last week, if you'd have been Moline where I was preaching, last week I talked about this headspace. There's a sacred place in all of our days. Every single day, it's these, these, these moments of time, these snatches of time and all the business that we have in which we have a moment to, to be thinking. So it's typically when we're driving, maybe. Or maybe you're standing in line for the, at the post office. Or maybe you're walking from the car to the grocery store, into the grocery store. There's this moment of headspace in which nothing else is really distracting you and there's something going on there. That's very sacred time. What are you thinking about? There's a headspace or there's a heart space. A heart space, what is it that we love most? That's where the glory war is. We can see what the glory war is at that moment. And so that was going on for these exiles as the glory war was raging on in the battlefields of their hearts, those promises were compelling them because of the superior glory of God. And the only way to maintain steadfastness in exile is to protect your heart space by focusing on the glory of God. See, several weeks ago, Justin spoke about the cultural environment we find ourselves in as Christians. There uh, was a time when Christianity was looked upon as a positive influence on our culture, on the flourishing life. So then around the early 1990s, a shift occurred where Christianity was considered neutral, neither positive nor negative, but rather just you know, one of the many options for a flourishing life. But right around the 2010s, as we kind of reflect back, Christianity was no longer considered neutral, as now Christianity is considered, with its absolute truth, is considered a negative influence on a flourishing life. We are exiles. More and more, we ought to relate to the book of 1 Peter, where Peter addresses his readers as the elect exiles or as sojourners. So in Nehemiah, a small portion of the exiles return to their towns, their homes, to see what has become of them and to take their small parts in rebuilding the nation, starting with restoring a true worship of the living God of the universe. And so we looked at Ezra some time ago. I want to do is I want to start with some general observations about this list and then turn to some specific observations because I think they'll be very helpful for us. General observations. The work of God is done by anonymous, ordinary people. Like you and me. We know nothing about the supermajority of the people in this list. And while most of their names are strange sounding to our Western ears, they were everyday names like Bob and Julie, Mike and Betty. <laughs> A people who, because in their exile, they focused on the glory of God, the promises of God were more glorious than the promises of the world that they were living in. There was a daily glory war in the battlefield of their hearts. Anonymous, ordinary people. Secondly, general observation, people count. People count. Look there. The people were counted. As Nehemiah looked back on the returnees and as he looked forward to the work of God, he recognized that everyone matters. They may be anonymous, but everyone counts. 
Third observation. In the way God has ordered the world, he expects men to lead. You'll notice that at the beginning of verse 8, all the way through verse 25, these individuals are identified as what? Sons. These were men who knew where they came from. They were sons of somebody. They were men who knew where they came from. They, they descended. They were downriver from men who knew where they came from, and those men knew who where they came from, and those men knew who they, where they came from, and so forth and so on. They could trace their lineage back to Abraham, back to Noah, back to Adam, ultimately back to God. See, this is the importance of genealogies. They connect us to those who went before us. In 538 B.C., when given the chance to leave their established life in the province of Babylon, the glory of their homes and their careers and their gardens and their bowling leagues, all of that paled in comparison to the glory of God because they knew where they came from. And that gave them purpose. They are part, they were part of the glorious legacy of the promises of their creator God. And so are we. We can equally trace back our lineage back to Abraham by faith, for instance. Go in your Bibles to now Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. I want to just read verses, I think it's 3 through 5 here. Romans 4. Beginning in verse 3, says, For what does the Scripture say? Well, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And then Paul asked the question, he asked, is this blessing just for Jews or is it also for Gentiles? And he answers, oh no, it's not just for Jews, it's also for Gentiles because he says just a little bit further along, this is in verse 11, right in the middle of verse 11, it says, the purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that is without being a Jew, so that the righteousness would be counted to them as well. And then he concludes in verses 16 and 17, these, he concludes this way, that is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, that would be the Jew, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that do not exist. So in this glory war being fought on the battlefield of our hearts, we all need to know our legacy. The knowledge of our spiritual legacy then gives us meaning and purpose for today. So the glories of entertainment and the glories of vacations and the glories of social media presence pales in comparison to the glory of God being our Father. So man, God has ordered the world in such a way that that we are to know that legacy and then we're to pass that legacy on to our children. Men are to lead. And then final general observation, central to changing culture is the people of God. See, remember, Ezra and Nehemiah is one book. Ezra focuses on the building of the temple and the restoration of worship. Nehemiah focuses on the building of the walls and the restoration of a nation. The list here in Nehemiah 7 is the same list found in Ezra 2 with very small differences. See, scholars believe that there was a separate document that Ezra and Nehemiah were relying on found in an archive a list that supplied the names of those who returned from exile. Ezra's purpose for the genealogical list was religious, so that's why we have it in Ezra 2. He was asking the question, who among the body of exiles were Jews? 
He was concerned about this because his concern was around the true worship of God. Only Jews who had descended from Abraham could worship in the temple. Nehemiah's objective was different. He was asking the question, who is available to repopulate, to protect and to revitalize the city that now, the walls, now that the walls have been rebuilt? But interestingly, whether you are attempting to restore worship back to the living God of the universe or attempting to rebuild a city of which is central to the nation chosen by that living God of the universe, you are looking for the same type of people. You're looking for people who love the glory of God. And so central to changing the culture is the people who love the glory of God, central to the work of God is the glory of God. Well, those are some general observations. Uh, let's look at some specific ones. The list here is divided up into some major categories. The first is leaders. Leaders, verse 7. Uh, they, it starts, verse 7 starts with they, the people who came out of captivity, were led by Zerubbabel, who is the grandson of Jehoiachin, who was the last king in the, uh, in the Babylonian siege. He is in the line of David, and so he's in the proper line of a, of a, a promised uh, king coming. And with him, Jeshua, who is the high priest, which can also be translated Joshua, which in the Greek is, is translated Jesus, which means God saved, God saves. So Jeshua's and Zerubbabel's partnership was so close that Zechariah, the contemporary prophet of the day, he saw these two coming together and he ultimately saw that in one individual, in the Messiah, we would have the royalty and we would have the priesthood. Looking forward to, of course, Jesus Christ. See, nation building and its culture will always be formed downstream from religion, so it is false to say that we can somehow separate what we believe as our ultimate good, religion, and we can separate that from nation building. What we believe as a people affects our culture. So we also have Nehemiah, not the Nehemiah who's the main character of our book since he arrived later. Nehemiah was a common Hebrew name, and as for the remaining individuals, we don't know much about them. Maybe, maybe Mordecai, Esther's uncle. All leaders, some prominent than others, but all needed and responsible to lead the exiles. The second category is laymen, laymen uh, verses 8 through 38. In contrast to what we're going to find in verses 39 and beyond, these are, see there right before, um, right before verse 8, these are the people of Israel, specifically those who were not directly responsible for the temple and its worship. And then, from verses 39 through 65, the remaining names are all those who returned who were responsible for the temple and its worship. And so again, we begin to see here that what's absolutely necessary for the change in our culture is the worship in our culture. It begins first with the religion, and then downstream comes the nation and comes its culture. And so very important is who is going to be leading worship. So we have the priests, verses 39 through 42, individuals who directly descended from Aaron and those thus responsible for the overall temple worship and feast. We have Levites in verse 48. They were the descendants of Levi, who uh, one of the original 12 patriarchs, yet not in the line of Aaron. And so what are they there for? They're there for to assist the high priest. And then we have another set of individuals, the singers, verse 48. And we need to stop here and reflect on these. In this glory war, singing was and is integral to taking truth and moving it from our heads down into our hearts. Knowledge about God sinking into a love of God, into emotions. See, Colossians 3.16, Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, 
teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now, first, what are we commanded to do? Well, we are to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly, which implies that the word of Christ can dwell in us in an impoverished way. So how do we let the word of Christ dwell in us richly? Well, we do it by singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And notice here, he calls it the word of Christ. Well, this is synonymous with the gospel. The gospel and its everyday implications of reminding me of my identity in Jesus Christ, of my right standing because of the work of Jesus Christ, and my worth in the Father's eyes. Music is to be a medium to preach to my soul of my riches in Christ. Secondly, in Colossians 3.16, we're commanded to be teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Well, how do we do that? How do we teach and admonish one another? Well, we do it by singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We are hearing today the corporate agreement of the gospel and it teaches and powerfully even admonishes us where we have failed to apply the gospel and the result is thankfulness within the heart of a man or a woman of God. See, central to the work of God is the glory of God. And so we have singers. And more, we have gatekeepers. Verse 45, their duty was to ensure order within the temple, mount, lock, and unlock the doors, watch over the participants, keep watch over the temple treasury. It's a reminder that we don't come to God to be worshiped in, in, in our own way, but in an orderly, proper way, a way that comes on his terms and not our terms. Then we have the temple servants, verses uh, 46 through 56, and just as the Levites needed assistance, uh, needed to assist the high priest, so the temple servants were assistants to the Levites in this worship. And then we have these characters, the sons of Solomon's servants, that's verses 57 through 60, and most likely they are laymen who were recruited to come alongside the temple servants. Why they are called sons of Solomon's servants, eh, it's a mystery. But we do know that they are closely related to the temple servants and task for their total is found together to be 392. And then finally we have those of questionable ancestry, laymen, verse 62, and priests, verse 63. Now you notice how I skipped all the crazy sounding names. Thank you, Liz, for being so bold, and not me. Uh, this questionable ancestry is important for us to stop too. It's here where we find how compelling the glory of God is. His glory, is, his glory is dangerous. See, in his law, God gave categories. He gave categories of holy and clean and unclean to aid his people in understanding his dangerous otherness. He wasn't like the gods of their imagination. He was greater than, he was other than what they could imagine. He was and is dangerous. Only the holy, those set apart to God by a particular sacrifice could enter into the presence of God to be anything less than holy or to come with one's own standards of what you think is to be holy or to be clean was to invite disaster. The best analogy I can think of is the respect and caution we have in stepping inside a nuclear reactor. So you don't walk into, you don't waltz into a nuclear reactor into the presence of uranium-enriched fuel rods without receiving a lot of instruction and without a lot of protection. To do otherwise is to invite disaster into one's life. And so is God. 
so with God. These, these verses are a reflection of the sober reality of loving the glory of God. These verses reveal how compelling his glory is. And so as Nehemiah looks back at what God has done, he has he, God, has won the glory war on the battlefield of the hearts of God's people. And so in verses 66 through 69, it provides the sum total number of Jews who returned. It also provides other totals, uh, servants and singers. Isn't it interesting the singers are mentioned here again in this glory war? And horses and mules and camels and donkeys, everything necessary for the return. See, central to the work of God is the glory of God, a glory that has won, been won in the hearts of his people. But it doesn't remain there in their hearts. It translates to the material. It does translate to horses and mules and camels and donkeys. It translates to giving and living. And so as Nehemiah reflects on what God has done in the past, now he turns his attention to looking to the future. And so really verses 70 through 72 is describing that future. It's describing a concern to have provision for the work of the temple. And so that's what we have here. The giving is to secure the provision for those who would be working in the temple. And not surprisingly, responsibility to provide was, number one, on the men. Namely, the heads of the households of that day. And as we have found earlier in Nehemiah's leadership, it begins with him, so responsibility was on the leaders to be first in the work of providing for the worship of God. Look at verse 70. And so now the heads of fathers' households gave to the work. The governor, that's Nehemiah, gave to the treasury 1,000 derricks of gold, 50 basins, 30 priest garments, and 500 minas of silver. Thirdly, the responsibility was on the wealthy. And some of the heads of fathers' households gave into the treasury of the work 20,000 derricks of gold and 2,200 minas of silver. Now we know that a number of the wealthier Jewish families, nobles, were teamed up with the stated enemy of God, Tobiah. They were hostile to Nehemiah's plans to rebuild, but there were others who were not so opposed. <laughs> There was a small group of the wealthy whose total 20,000 derricks of gold and 2,200 of minas of silver matched what the majority had given, verse 72, and what the rest of the people gave was 20,000 derricks of gold, 2,000 minas of silver, and 67 priest garments. And scholars, as they look back, have tried to estimate that the families of Israel probably gave gold and silver worth more than $5 million. That was a considerable endowment for the future temple service. See, see, glory, the glory war is won on the battlefield of the heart, and then it translates to the material. And in this case, giving to the work of God. And then it translates to the material by living for the glory of God wherever we live. And so we have verse 73, and so the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants and all of Israel lived in their towns. As we would say here at Sacred City, on mission. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What captures our hearts drives our lives, and so there is a glory war going on in our hearts. And as we stare out into our culture today, we are exiles. And as exiles, what can we do to restore the former glory of our nation? Or maybe we need to be thinking about this. What can we do to restore the glory of our closest relationships? Or how do we restore our families? How do we restore our neighborhoods? How do we restore our cities and towns? How do we restore our nation? Well, remember this. God works through anonymous, ordinary people like you and me. You count. People who know where they come from, we know our legacy, 
and who understand that culture comes downstream from what these people treasure most. So what can you do to restore your relationships, to restore your family, to restore your neighborhood, to restore your city, to restore your nation? Grow in the knowledge and love of the glory of God found most clearly in the gospel. That's what you can do. The biggest weapon that protects our hearts from lesser glories is not a set of self-reformative defensive strategies. It's a heart that is so blown away by the right here, right now, glories of the grace of Jesus Christ that we're not easily seduced by the lesser temporary glories. He is so glorious that he is dangerous. Only the holy, those set apart by God, by a particular sacrifice, can enter into the presence of God, and that sacrifice is his own son, Jesus Christ, to protect you from the wrath that naturally and logically comes out of his holiness. The glory of the gospel is that I have been adopted by the Father, and my identity in Jesus Christ is I am a child of God. The glory of the gospel is that I have a right standing before the Father because of the work of Christ. He lived the life that I should have lived and he died the death that I should have died. The glory of the gospel is that my worth is not in my occupation or success or failures, but that I am the Father's treasured possession. No other kingdom can offer me what the Father has already given me. Central to success, to the fruitfulness of the work of God is this glory of God. And so we take the Lord's Supper to remind us of this, and that is that Jesus Christ came and gave his body, took your sins on him and gave his body as a sacrifice for you. He shed his blood, so we take the cup, and he shed his blood and, and for, the, for the forgiveness of your sins to be the one and who would protect you from the, from the reasonable, logical wrath of God for a God is who so great. And so as we take this, we're reminded again, we feed on this reality. It causes us to love more and more the gospel. So Father, we pray that as we take, we pray that you would be honored that you would be glorified. And so, Father, we do pray that whatever lesser glories have been, have been capturing our hearts this past week, we pray, Father, convict us of that. We pray, give us repentance. Cause us to believe again of what we are enjoying right now, and that is a reminder of what Christ has done on our behalf. Father, we thank you for your glory. We thank you how it's seen in our Savior, Jesus Christ. May you be glorified today. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.